honor. That's why we're here. That's why we should be here. To worship God, to glory in the Lord, to celebrate his name. In fact, all of life beyond all, beyond these four walls and beyond Sunday morning should be lived out in the glory of the Lord, to lived out, to do all things that magnify the name of Jesus Christ. And at the heart of glory, I think our text this morning will show us is worship. It's worship. To glory in the Lord is to worship the Lord. To glory in the Lord is to know him, to be known by him. To know him is to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to know him is to glory in him and to worship in him, to worship him. Our text, though, this mind just reminds us it can be easy and we can be easily tempted to forget our chief end, which is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Amen. To glory in the Lord. We can easily turn to things that draw our attention away from the Lord. We, we supplant Christ as the rightful ruler in our lives and we let other things determine our hope, our joy, our satisfaction. We can tend to find great joy in the gift rather than in the giver of the gift. My prayer is that as we consider the text this morning, that God through his spirit would open our eyes, that we would understand our Lord deeper and richer so that our lives would be marked by worship and praise and that we would bring all glory and honor to our King. So as we start in Jeremiah 9, I invite you to stand if you're able. We'll hear from Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. And I'll pray for our time in the word. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Well, God in heaven, may your word Lord, lead us to exalt your name, to praise you, to worship you, to enjoy you, to celebrate who you are, to magnify your name in all of life, God. Use our time, God. Help me through your spirit to be faithful to your word. And may God, your word this morning, build up your church, equip us for every good work. In Christ's name, amen. Be seated. Before we dive into Jeremiah chapter 9, let me provide you with a bit of context. Uh, Jeremiah is a compilation of the prophet Jeremiah's prophecies or speeches that are interspersed through historical events during Jeremiah's time. None of these things are necessarily in chronological order. The book of Jeremiah covers about 40 years of Israel's history, starting at around 627 BC, give or take. Chapter one is basically an introduction to Jeremiah the prophet and his message. Chris shared when he preached Jeremiah several weeks ago um, that many believe Jeremiah was somewhere between the ages of 13 and in his early 20s. So he was a young man who was commissioned by God to go bring a message to the nations and, and to Israel. He was called to call Israel specifically to repentance. An overarching theme of this book is judgment. 
Israel's rebellion against God, God was judging Israel. But then also within this book, within the warning of judgment, is God's call to Israel to repent. Over a hundred times in this book, God uses a specific word in the Hebrew calling Israel to return, to repent, to turn away. The righteousness of God we see in, the, in Jeremiah demands judgment, rightfully so. But the grace and mercy of God offers repentance, the heart of the gospel. Judgment is coming. Repent and believe. That is Jeremiah's message to the nation of Israel. And he does this, he preaches this message for over 40 years. And for over 40 years, no one repents, no one turns away. In chapters two through six, we see that God through Jeremiah rebukes Israel's immorality. He's rebuking their wickedness. They'd gone so far as to burn their own children as sacrifices to the various gods of the nations. And then in chapters seven through 10, the emphasis shifts from Israel's wickedness and their immorality to their false worship, to the worship of false gods, false idols. Here in Jeremiah, Chapter 9, verse 14, God says this about Israel, they have stubbornly followed after their own hearts and have gone after the Baals as their fathers taught them. In essence, they have turned away from God and the King James Version says they have sought after the imaginations of their hearts. I like that word. Because really, I think it conveys what's going on. It's their desires, their deceitful desires, their things that aren't real, they're pursuing after things that cannot satisfy. And Paul will say a similar thing in Ephesians 4.22 about our former way of life was according to our deceitful desires, which, is, which would be our illusionary pleasures. We pursue after things that cannot satisfy. We believe they can, but they can't. They're imaginations of our hearts. They began, Israel began, to seek to satisfy the desires of their hearts through false worship. Through the Baals, Jeremiah says. We don't have the Baals, we do have other gods. We have the gods of beauty, the gods of comfort, the gods of security, wealth, safety, pleasure, joy. Little gods that take up root in our own hearts and we serve them. We seek to satisfy them, to grant, to find things that that will satisfy them so that we might be satisfied, that we might find in them the things that only God himself provides us. And I think it's, it's fascinating as we get to this section in Jeremiah chapter nine, that as I read it and read it, read it and read it and read it, the tone seems to shift in verses 23 and 24. In Jeremiah nine, God is pretty harsh with Israel. He speaks harshly about them. He's rebuking them for their false worship. In verse 15 of chapter 9, he says, Therefore says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed this people with bitter food and give them poisonous water to drink. I will scatter them among the nations with whom neither they nor their fathers have known. I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them. In verse 22 of the same chapter, he says, Thus declares the Lord, The dead bodies of men shall fall like dung upon the open field, like sheaves after the reaper, and none shall gather them. He speaks of harsh judgment. And then the tone seems to shift a little bit. 
in here in verses 23 and 24. It shifts and it's almost as if it becomes now an exhortation, a plea from God in light of all that, in light of all that they're doing. A plea from a merciful God to repent and to reject, to turn away. Stop boasting in the world, he says. Boast in me. The word boast here in Jeremiah in the, in, Hebrew is, in the Hebrew is used nine times in the entire book. Five of them are used in these two short verses. So it's pretty clear that these two short verses have a lot to say about praise, about glory, about boasting. To boast is to make much of something. We're all familiar with boasting. We all enjoy boasting and, what, and celebrating in things. If you're a Cal fan, you're boasting today because they brought home the axe. We're boasting. We're celebrating in things that, we, that give us joy. Boasting is something we're familiar with. It's something we celebrate, we amplify, we highlight, we bring attention to it. It's the same root word from which we get the word hallelujah, a word that we use to praise the Lord. To glory in the Lord, to boast in his name, is to treasure him above all else. And then to live a life that is marked and characterized by that very truth, by that very reality, that our lives would amplify and magnify the goodness and the glory of God. I think on the one hand, this passage, it does rebuke the folly and the futility and the arrogance associated that presuming your accomplishments or that your wisdom or your riches or your might or even a cow victory would grant you what only the Lord provides. Positively, this passage speaks about true glory, true boasting, true satisfaction, being rooted in, hum in a humility that finds its joy and contentment in knowing, worshiping, and obeying the living God. Vainglory, true glory. Vainglory and true glory. In verse 23, in reference to our, the category of vainglory, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches. Wisdom, might, and riches. We might say in our context today, wisdom, power, wealth. These are three very real ways of looking at the world. They are three even worldviews which presume to conclude that we are masters of our own world. That we determine happiness, safety, security, comfort, peace, through where we place our hope. Do we place it in wisdom? Do we place it in our wealth? Do we hope in power, strength, might, either from within ourselves or from some source outside of God? I think these three words really summarize looking to the world for answers, for our hope, for joy, for peace. Looking to the world to satisfy our desires for acceptance, for purpose, for identity. <clears throat> Here's what I, I don't think God is saying, though. I don't believe he's saying that wisdom, wealth, power are evil. For example, 1 Timothy 6 
Paul tells Timothy that it is God who gives wealth and is to be used generously. We know that King Solomon possessed all three of these, wisdom, power, wealth, perhaps more than any other man this side of Jesus. He had it all. More wisdom than any man ever before him and after him. More wealth in a nation than any other nation that ever existed. More power in a nation that had ever been before him. Other nations marveled at him. They went to go see him. Who is this guy? What is this nation? It was the glory years of Israel. But Solomon ended up using all three of these for evil. He ended up using all three of these gifts from God to satisfy every desire of his heart. He says, I set my mind to find out there's something better than God, to paraphrase him loosely. And he sought to do that. But in the end, he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, that the chief end of man, the whole duty of man, he recognized, is to fear God and to keep his commandments. I think God's rebuke to Israel is not only did they seek to satisfy every desire of their heart through the, through the things of this world, but in doing so, they ultimately placed their trust in them. To worship them is to trust them to provide for them things that only God would provide, can provide. They began to worship the created thing. They pursued the imaginations of their heart rather than glorifying God and offering their lives as a living sacrifice to the God who loved them, to the God who cared for them, who dwelt with them. I think it's important to ask the question, how is it then that Israel got here? These are the people of God. They began to worship worthless idols, idols that have eyes that cannot see, ears that cannot hear. They began to place their hope in things that are empty and vain. How is it the people of God came to boast in themselves or this world rather than the living God? And I think we need to ask ourselves this question because we can be tempted to do the same thing. Jeremiah, God through Jeremiah, answers this question of how Israel, how Israel got here. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 9, God says this about what Israel had done. He says, Therefore I still contend with you, declares the Lord. With your children's children I will contend. For cross to the coast of Cyprus and see, or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. What he's saying there is, Go look at the other pagan nations. Look over there. See if they are even doing what you do. Go look at them. Do they do what you do? Has a nation, verse 11, changed its gods even though they are no gods? They don't even do this. They worship false gods and they don't even change their gods. They don't walk away from them. But it says in verse 11, but my people have changed their glory, the glory of God, for that which does not profit. Be appalled, he says, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that hold no water. Be appalled, he says. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate. 
These are strong words from the mouth of God with the heavens as his jury. He declares, in no uncertain terms, look at Israel. Look at what they've done. They have done what even the pagans don't even do. They've abandoned the glory of God for what is worthless. For what's worthless. They've committed two great evils. They've ejected God, Yahweh, the Lord. They've abandoned God. They've given up on God. And the only reason we're given is they pursued after their own imaginations of their hearts. They pursued after the stubbornness of their own hearts. That's why they did it. They felt there was something better. In pursuing their own desires, they abandoned the Lord of glory. He says, the fountain of living water. And replaced him with broken cisterns. You know, as I, as I thought of the imagery here, the imagery that came to my mind of what Israel had done, I, I, about eight years ago, nine years ago, we were up at Mount Shasta with the, for an elders retreat, and I had never been to Mount Shasta, but I understand it, and, and I experienced it. The foot of Mount Shasta is the beginning of the Sacramento River. And it is said that at the, where the river comes out of Mount Shasta, that it is the coolest, crispest, that's a word, crispest, <laughs> freshest water you will ever taste out of, the, out of the base of Mount Shasta. And sure enough, people are lined up all over the place with their bottles, with their jars, collecting the water right out of Mount Shasta. And I took a cup of that, and, and sure enough, it is something great. It is fresh, cool, crisp water. And it would be like me going out to my backyard, digging a hole, hoping to catch rain, and expecting to be satisfied just like that. That is what Israel had done. They had rejected the source of living water, the sole satisfying source of living water, and they made catch basins expecting to be satisfied in the same way that God would satisfy them. And not only that, these things didn't even work, God says. One commentator said, and I quote him, Israel who had available the full resources of their God, Yahweh, the spring of living water turned instead to worthless substitutes to trust themselves to powerless deities, which in the end could not meet their deep spiritual needs. Unquote. They've exchanged the living God for a lie. And too often the people of God, as with Israel, believe the lie. We exchange the promises of God for worldly wisdom. We exchange the riches of Christ for the love of this world. We exchange the power of God found in the gospel of Jesus Christ for worthless substitutes that in the end leave us dry. The New Testament authors echo similar warnings to the ones of Jeremiah. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, the apostle John writes these words, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. 
Do not love the world. Do not love what the world offers you. Do not set your affections on the things of this world. They have no value compared to the God of the universe who through Christ offers eternal life. The scriptures warn us and exhort us because we are tempted to reject the fountain of living water. Because the world promises us a shinier, newer model. We, we tend to sometimes even listen to our own hearts, to our own hearts, our own feelings. And we want, we pursue after things with great vigor because we want them. We pursue after them more than we pursue after God and Christ. The world and our hearts. The world and our hearts. To whom or what are you listening to as you follow Christ? When it comes to the world, are you listening to what the world says about your purity, about your holiness, about integrity? Do you listen to the world when it comes to the, when it comes to the use of your time, when it comes to the use of your money? Do you listen to TikTok, Instagram, when it comes to how you view beauty, strength, might? Do you listen to the world when it comes to your marriage, your friendships, your relationships? Who are you listening to? The God of all glory has a lot to say about all of those. And we must place our confidence in him, our hope in him. The world will lure, the world will tempt, the world will offer that which pales in comparison to the glory of the wisdom of God. And the other side of that coin of wisdom is our worldly wisdom is our hearts. God says our hearts in Jeremiah 17, 9, are deceitful and sick and can't be trusted. Our hearts are deceitful and sick and can't be trusted. Our culture, on the other hand, says we should listen to our hearts. Follow your heart. Because our heart equals truth, according to the world. Think about where we are today. Truth is now defined by whatever you say your heart Whatever your heart says is now true. Whatever you feel is now true. When it comes to all sorts of things that we face in our culture, feelings equal truth. Sometimes even in the church, we may excuse sinful behavior because I quote, I just feel it's right. It just feels right. Ultimately elevating our own feelings above what God may say about any given thing that we feel is right, if God says something counter to it, we do the opposite because I feel it's right. The notion that we get to determine whatever is true, that we have the power to decide for ourselves whatever is right, whatever is good, whatever is excellent, is a message straight from the pit of hell. We don't have the right to say that. God determines what is right and what is good what is excellent, what is praiseworthy. If we are adding our own truth to God's truth, then we are doing exactly what Israel was doing. And in Jeremiah 2, God condemns them for doing it. We are rejecting God, and we are making for ourselves worthless catch basins 
that can hold no water. We are digging holes in our backyards, hoping to catch fresh, cool water that in the end does nothing. So therefore, God's rebuke and God's plea, I think, to Israel is one we should heed as well. Jeremiah, thankfully, goes on in verse 24. He says, but let him who boasts, boasts in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in all the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Here we see that any glory, hope, or boasting that we might find in anything else pales in comparison to knowing intimately the God of creation. True glory is to worship God as God. True glory is to know who he is, to know what he is like, to know what he desires, and then to live life in such a way that brings glory, honor, and majesty to his name. To know who he is. He says that he understands, let the one who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and he knows me. That he understands and he knows me. The Hebrew word here for understand has an emphasis that is found in testing and trial and observation. The Hebrew word for know is something similar in that it uh, has the idea of knowledge through experience and revelation. So what does it mean then to know and understand God? Well, I don't think it can mean to know facts about God. I don't think it can mean even agreeing with facts about God. We know this because in the letter of James, the brother of Jesus, he says that even demons believe in God. They have excellent theology. In Mark 1, verse 24, when Jesus was approached by a man with an unclean spirit, the spirit cries out, what have you to do with me, Jesus? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And I think the word to know here used in Mark, in, in the Greek, is important for us to understand because Mark could have used other words for the word to know that express an intimacy of knowledge. Instead, this word to know means to perceive. It means to see. And it's as if he's saying, I know who you are. I've seen you before. That's what it means here, to know. To, I've seen you around. I know you. And I make this distinction because we are well taught here in this church. We know a lot of theology. Some of you here today may know facts about God, intellectually agreeing with who he is and what he has done in the person of Jesus Christ, even agreeing that God exists. But to know God in this context, I think implies something deeper, something personal. Let me provide a, a rough illustration, which I know will eventually break down, but I'm going to share it with you anyway. It took Thomas Edison 1,000 experiments to get the light bulb right. Because of his intimate involvement with the process creating the light bulb, he certainly understood it like no one else. He experimented on over 6,000 plant materials to find the right kind of filament that would hold the heat long enough for the light to glow. It took him over two years to do that. He blew his own glass to cover the filament. That is intimate knowledge 
through experience. He was very familiar with every single detail of that light bulb. And here's where that illustration breaks down. Edison is the creator. It would as, I think what the text is getting at here is it would be as if the light bulb were intimately familiar with Thomas Edison. And so, in answering a question like this, how is it man can know God? C.S. Lewis posited a, a proposition. He said that if in order for Hamlet to know that there was an author to his story, that he was not the author of his own story, that he was not in charge of his own path of life, that he would have to know that there was an author. C.S. Lewis said that Shakespeare would have to write himself into the story so that Hamlet would know there's an author to his story. He would have to introduce himself to Hamlet to say, I'm the one who writes the story. Otherwise, Hamlet would have no idea that there was someone else authoring his story. For the creator to know its creator intimately, the creator must enter into our story. He must enter in. He must write himself into the play. God must make himself known and knowable. The tragedy, I think, in this verse in Jeremiah is that God had, in fact, done just that. For centuries, he had dwelt in Israel's presence. For centuries, they were beneficiaries of his grace, of his kindness, of his goodness, of his blessing. He fought for them. He provided for them. From slavery, he redeemed them, protected them from harm. For Israel, there certainly could never be a doubt that God was real, that he was even worthy of worship. Clearly, he was. For them, this was a matter of faith. Trusting in his grace and mercy to be sufficient for them, trusting in God's provision to be enough for, him, for them, trusting in God's word to be sufficient for them. In Jeremiah 9, 6, God says that they utterly refused to know him. No, same word. They utterly refused to know him. They refused to be intimately acquainted with him because as we've learned, they stubbornly followed after their own hearts. They pursued after the own, their own imaginations of what is right and true and placed their hope in gods that cannot see, gods that cannot save. Do you know God intimately? Because let me say this, to know God intimately is to know his son personally. God wrote himself into our story through the person of his son. Jesus, who is the exact radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of the nature of God. God wrote himself into our story that you might be intimately acquainted with the God of the universe. To know the Son is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. To know the Son is to trust him. To trust him. If you know him that way, if you know him intimately, then the scriptures say that you cannot boast in that. You cannot boast in your goodness. You cannot boast in your religion. You cannot boast in your upbringing. You cannot boast that you were homeschooled. You cannot boast. The Apostle Paul, writing 1 Corinthians 26 and through 31, many commentators believe he was thinking of this very passage in Jeremiah 9, he says this, in verse 26 through 31, For consider your calling, brothers. 
Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. There is no boasting in our salvation. Why? Because we are in Christ Jesus because of him, because of God the Father. We are in Christ. If you know him today, it is not because of your good deeds. It is not because of your righteousness. It is not because of your good works. It is because of him, because he knew you. Opened your eyes. Caused you to see him with eyes of faith. That you might be humble. That you might then boast in the Lord, recognizing that the gift of salvation is from God and God alone. Brothers and sisters, Christ is our wisdom. He is our wealth. He is our might. We know from, first, from Ephesians chapter 1 that in Christ we possess the, we possess the riches of heaven. Peter, uh, Peter in 1 Peter spoke about we possess in Christ the wealth of an eternal hope. In Christ we possess the power of an eternal living God. Power over the temptation to sin. Power over our impulses. Power over our thought life. Power to love our enemy. We possess true power. We possess true wealth. We possess true wisdom in Christ. Why? Why us? Because of him. Because of him. Because of his grace and his mercy, we know him. And he made himself known to us. We bring nothing to this equation. Titus 3.5 says, For he saved us not because of righteous deeds we have done, but because of his mercy. But because of his mercy, we simply therefore must just fall down in humility and worship at his feet, boasting in the Lord, glorying in his name because of who he is, because of what he's done. Perhaps you're in this room today and you know about God. Maybe you've been raised in even a Christian home. You know all there is. You know all the questions, the answers of the catechism. Or maybe you've just wandered, wandered in here today and this is the first time you're hearing about God, about our Savior. Ask yourself, do you know him? Are you intimately acquainted with him through the person of Jesus Christ? The one who made himself known, the one who entered into our story, the one who took upon himself the full wrath of God for your sake. Do you know him? Intimately, do you know him as king, as savior, as ruler, and as redeemer? If you don't know him to that, that way, then today, let today be the day you humble yourself before God. You cease boasting the things of this world. You cease placing your hope in your accomplishments. And you turn to Christ and boast in his name and his name alone. True glory is to know who God is. 
and is to know what he is like. He says, to, he says that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in all the earth. To know what he is like is to know the glory of his name, that I am the Lord, he says, that I am Yahweh. Let him who boasts, boast and that he understands God as God, that he knows his name. In Isaiah 42, verse eight, God will say this, I am the Lord, that is my name. That is my name. And my glory I give to no other, nor praises to carved idols. That is his name. God is jealous for his name to be glorified by his people. By virtue of his name alone, he is worthy of all glory and praise. Because his name communicates what he is like. For the Israelites to hear that name, when he says that I am the Lord, that I am Yahweh, that, mean, that implies all sorts of imagery for them. Imagery of his holiness, his sovereignty, his omnipotence, his majesty, his glory, his goodness, his rule over all creation. They hear that name and it means something to them. By virtue of his name alone, he is worthy of worship, praise, honor. Do you know his name? Do you know God like that? When you hear his name, does it humble you? Do you know him and worship him as sovereign, as holy, as majestic, as mighty? And we shouldn't miss the connection here because it's at the name of Jesus in Philippians 2.11 that every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. It's at his name, the name of Jesus. Do you know his name? Do you know his name is Jesus? And do you know that his name, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, do you know him? Because to know him, to know his name, is to worship him, is to glorify him. To know what he is like, is not only to know the glory of God's name, but it's also to know the glory of his nature, the glory of his character. He says, I am the Lord. I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness. Hear the verb in the Hebrew, the word verb practice, acts more like a, a modifier of the Lord, like an adjective. What is God like? Here's what I'm like. I am steadfast in my, in my love. I am just, I am right. It's as if he's saying that. He practices these things, but he's saying, I do these things because this is who I am. I am steadfast in my love for you, merciful, kind. It's because of his nature. He does what he does because of who he is, because of what he's like. The first word modifying God here is the word hased. In the Hebrew, Hesed can be translated a whole bunch of different ways in English. Here in the ESV, it's translated steadfast love. In the NIV, they translate it kindness. In the, NASB, in the NASB, they translate it mercy. In the New King James, it's loving kindness. The word has such deep meaning 
that it takes nearly half a dozen English words to try to convey the meaning. Mercy, love, kindness are some of those words. And when this word is used of God, when he says, this is what I'm like, it conveys a deep commitment of God to his people. A commitment of God to his people. Remember, Israel was the one who walked away from him. He's saying, I'm committed to you in my mercy, in my steadfast love, in my kindness. If you're a Christian here today, God in his loving kindness, in his mercy, in his grace, is deeply committed to you through the person of his son. He's deeply committed to you. He's, his loyalty has been demonstrated. Christ at the cross, God demonstrated his own love to you in this, that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. God is committed to you, devoted to you. He has promised because of his son to never leave you nor forsake you. Because of his son, he has assured you your sins are forgiven. Because of his son, you are assured that you have peace with a holy God. Because of his son, you are assured that you are loved and you are accepted. Because of his son, you are assured that you will never be alone. Because of his son, you are assured that you will be with him in glory. Because of his son, you are assured that nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, that is worthy of boasting in the Lord. Nothing can separate you. God is committed to you, devoted to you through his mercy because he is merciful, because he is kind and good and steadfast. He's devoted to his people. Do you know God like that? Are you certain of his commitment to you through his son? If you doubt, look to his son. His son is the guarantee of God's commitment and devotion to you. It is his son, it's in his son that all the promises of God are yes and amen. It is in his son, Jesus, that we are assured of God's great love for us. Ephesians 2, 4 will say, but God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were lost in our trespasses and sins, he united us together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. God is committed to you. He's devoted to you through his mercy and his kindness and his grace. Do you know him like that? Look to the Son. Look to Christ. The second and third words are similar and so I'll cover them together. The second word is, in the Hebrew, is mispat. It's most commonly translated justice. It conveys the idea of a faithful judge who punishes the guilty and vindicates the innocent. The third word is estaka, which is commonly translated righteousness. It carries the idea with it of moral perfection. God is just and he is righteous. And this is important to understand because God's Justice and righteousness are at the heart of the gospel. They're at the heart of the cross of Christ. Without God's justice, without his righteousness, there is no forgiveness of sin. We'd all be lost and without hope. So we've seen in Jeremiah, Israel's rebellion for centuries against God. And really, 
all of humanity has rebelled against God since Genesis chapter 3. Romans 3.23 says we've all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. We've all chosen to live life on our own terms apart from God and God in his righteousness could not simply wink at sin because of his mercy. God in his righteousness must judge sin. He must deal with it according to his justice. Otherwise, he would not be God and he would not be worthy of worship. Romans 4.25 says that God, in order to show his righteousness, in order to demonstrate his righteousness, put forth his own son. Put forth his own son as a substitutionary sacrifice for you and me because of our rebellion. A son who God says in Jeremiah 23, verse 5, a son who is the righteous one, whose name is the Lord, our righteousness. Even in the book of Jeremiah, where God is pronouncing judgment on Israel, there is hope. My son is coming, the righteous one, the one who will be your righteousness. His name is the Lord, Yahweh, our righteousness. He put him on the cross. Jesus Christ, who is righteousness, who is morally perfect, without sin, holy, pure, went to the cross on our behalf, became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. A great exchange took place on that cross. God's mercy, God's justice, and his righteousness all met there. Our sin, our death, our judgment became Christ's. And by faith in Jesus Christ, his righteousness becomes ours. Our standing before God is now one of a holy, righteous child of God. By faith in Christ, the stain of our sin is washed away. By the grace and mercy of God, our sin is remembered no more. By the grace and mercy of God, we are no longer children of wrath, but we are now children of God, joint heirs with Christ, holy and beloved by the Father. See, that is worth boasting in. That's true glory. That's worth testifying about, speaking highly of, celebrating, to be known as children of God, to know God as a Father. We can know his kindness. We can know his patience. We can know his faithfulness. We can know his firmness. We can know his discipline as a faithful father because of the Son. God, who exists outside of time and space, can be intimately known through the person of his Son. True glory is to know who God is. It's to know what he is like. And lastly, and most briefly, it's to know what he delights in. He says, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. In what things does he delight? In what things? I think at the heart of what God is saying here is that he delights not only in practicing being merciful, acting upon being loving kindness, and, being, and, and, and acting in just, justice and righteousness, but I think more significantly he delights in people, his people, 
who live a life marked by these very things, who live a life characterized by mercy, kindness, justice, righteousness. See, Israel was to be a blessing to all the nations. They were to be living their lives in a way that the, they would love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and love their neighbors as themselves. They were to put on display the glory of God to the nations. Instead, they became like the world. In Christ, we are called to be salt and light. We are called to live lives that point to Jesus, to live lives that point to the glory and goodness of God. God in Hosea 6, verse 6 says, I desire, I desire, I delight in steadfast love or mercy. I delight in hesed, not sacrifice. The knowledge of God is what he delights in, not burnt offerings. God doesn't want religion. God doesn't want you to follow his rules. God wants a devotion to him, a loyalty to him, a commitment to him. He wants what is rightly his. He wants our affection. He wants our worship. He wants our adoration. He wants us to love him with all our hearts, with all our minds, with all our strength. In Micah 6.8, he says, He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, has said, and to walk humbly with your God. True glory, I think, is that as the people of God, we glorify God by doing the will of God. It is doing and being who God calls us to be. It is where the rubber meets the road for us as Christians. The motive that is to drive us is not the praise of men, nor, nor even to merit the favor of God. The motive that must drive us must simply be to please God. Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 5.9, make it your aim to please him. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.14 that it's the love, our love, it's Christ's love for us that must compel us, that must propel us, that must move us to do what? To do all things to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31. It's the love of Christ that must compel us, motivate us, propel us forward. To meditate on the great love with which we are loved by God the Father through his Son must compel us to live a life that brings glory to God. See, the gospel is our motivation. The gospel is our motivation. Paul will say a few times, once in Romans 12:1, after spending 11 chapters speaking about the gospel, he will say, therefore, by the mercies of God, the very things I just talked to you about in the gospel, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Why? This is your acceptable act of worship. Worship. Paul will say the same thing in Ephesians 4, verse 1. After spending three chapters speaking about the glory of the gospel, he'll say, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, worthy of being set apart by God, for God. Live a life that magnifies the goodness of his name. 